What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions, both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I am talking to Jen Yep. Jen, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. You are the founder of Lunch Money, which your website describes as a delightfully simple budgeting app, and that's at lunchmoney.app. Tell us about Lunch Money. Who's it for and why do they use it? Yeah, so Lunch Money is a personal finance and budgeting web app. So we're definitely in the same bucket as Mint or YNAB. Um, I would say that our advantage is that we were built uh, on a modern tech stack for the modern day spender. Um, both Mint and YNAB were, you know, almost over a decade old. So definitely a little bit dated. Originally, I built lunch money for myself. The main feature that I found most budgeting apps were lacking was multi-currency support. And mm-hmm. because I travel abroad a lot and I, I live abroad, and so a lot of these uh, countries I live in are cash-based cash-based societies. And so I like to track all my spending, and it kind of got really messy in the Excel spreadsheet that I was maintaining. And so... Um, eventually I thought, you know, there must be a better way to track your multi-currency spending. And there's other people like me, digital nomads, people that, you know, solo travel or just travel long-term. Uh, so that was my original motivation. And as it turns out, digital nomads are not a significant cohort of my user base at all, which is pretty funny. Really? <laughs> so you guessed wrong, but it still seems to be working out. You just started working on this app last year. You're already up to around $800 a month and monthly recurring revenue. And what's really cool is that you're a one-person company. You have no coworkers. You don't have a co-founder. You don't have any employees. You're doing all of the design. And it looks great, by the way. You're doing all the front-end and the back-end coding, the writing and the customer support and the marketing. 100% of it, you're doing it all by yourself. Yeah, I think that I never really planned to be a solo founder. It kind of just happened. So starting off, you know, it was just the design work of it, uh, coming up with the first initial sketches of how it looked. And so I've always been interested in design and, and just started using sketch. And so I use that to, to kick off the design. And then obviously the engineering work, that is what I got my degree in. And so it was pretty easy to do that. And then everything else just kind of came as needed. And so for example, like the marketing part, where we are now, we have to really uh, think about how to acquire new users. And so that's something new. And with every new kind of job that I need to do, it just starts with me figuring out what that entails. Because if I'm going to hire someone to do it, then I need to understand myself. And then once I understand a little bit, then I'm like, oh, okay, well, I can, you know, I can hit these low hang fruits, you know, for marketing really quickly and kind of get the ball rolling on that. And then it just it just kind of spiraled. And now now I'm a solo founder, I guess. I want to dive into this because a lot of indie hackers are actually solo founders. And on one hand, it seems like this romantic dream of just doing everything by yourself, not having to answer to anybody, not having to communicate. But on the other, there's just some serious challenges to being a solo founder. First of all, there's all the different skills that you need to have. So I want to talk about how you acquired those skills over the course of your career. Um, there's motivation Generally, if you have a co-founder, that's another person who's pushing you, who makes sure that you keep going even when you don't want to keep going necessarily on your own, uh, who gets you excited to work on things when you're not in the highest of moods. But as a solo founder, that has to all come intrinsically. Then there's just like your productivity. As one person working on something, how do you prioritize what to do? How do you make sure you can do all the jobs and all the hats that you need to? Uh, there's just your sanity. How do you make sure that you're not going crazy, that you don't burn out, that you you know, you can take days off and actually be a sane human being. And there's a million other challenges. So I really want to get into this. Maybe the best place to start is at sort of the beginning of your career, which is, I think you got a job at Twitter out of college. Yes, I did. I started my first full-time job as a software engineer at Twitter. During my time there, I was there for three and a half years. I worked on three different teams and they were all up and down the stack, which I think was, it provided me, it provided me with a really good foundation. So I started on a internal tools team where I was mainly working on the front end part of a internal data visualization monitoring tool. 
And so from there, I learned a lot of front end skills and also learned how to build customer empathy because I was talking to a lot of the engineers that was working at Twitter. And it's kind of weird because I wasn't a user of the product. So I really had to rely on what they were telling me, you know, was useful to them and was not useful to them. And then I moved on to a growth team. So I was working on new user experience. And so I got to kind of work with product managers for the first time and kind of see more, you know, how they're thinking about how a Twitter user might go through a user flow and what they're trying to steer them to do. And so that was really helpful um, to kind of see how that part of it works. And then my last team at Twitter was at the infrastructure level. So I was writing code in Scala and I was rewriting kind of the infrastructure that would process uh, text messages that would be sent uh, between Twitter and users all over the world. So that was that was a huge refactoring work. But I think that was really good because I was working with probably some of the smartest engineers that I'd ever worked with. And they were very diligent about making sure I was writing tests, I was writing robust code. And so I think, you know, looking back at my experience on Twitter, it was really great that I was able to move to so many different teams and, and gain all these different skills. Yeah, it's pretty interesting that you had such a diverse set of experiences because I think a lot of people, when they go work at a bigger company like that, they stick to one team and they become essentially a pretty small cog and a massive machine and they go super deep on that one thing that they're doing, but they don't get the broad overview that you got of getting to see what it's like to talk to customers and think about growth and deliver products to people who aren't you, who you don't know how they're going to use it and you have to rely on their feedback and then to see like the hardcore engineering stuff too. What did you learn there that you think stuck with you the most in terms of you becoming a founder and having to build your own company from scratch? Probably the thing that was the most useful from working at Twitter was just the the breadth of experience versus the depth, I would say. like It was really cool to work at Twitter when it was pre-IPO up until post-IPO. And it was like going to camp every day. Like They had all of these you know, they would have hack week and they would have all these like separate clubs and they would have all these kind of extracurriculars that you could get into. And so I feel like that helped round me out, not just as an engineer, but also as a person and just like working with all these different people, meeting different people at such a high rate compared to when, you know, I had just come out of college where everyone is, you know, kind of just like me trying to get their engineering degree. And so I think that was a really cool experience to have had a, at a big company like Twitter. The other thing I think that's typical, especially among engineers who work at a bigger company like Twitter, is that when your time there is over, when you start getting bored, typically what people do is hop to another big company. They're like, okay, I've worked at Twitter. That's on my resume. Check. Let me go work at Facebook or Google or Apple or something like that. You took a different path. Tell me about starting your your first startup. Yeah. So while I was working at Twitter, I moved in with a really good friend of mine. And at that point, she was starting to work on her own startup. And so I was kind of, you know, every morning I would wake up, get ready to go to work and she'd already be up working away. And I guess that kind of like that vision always kind of stuck with me. And then as I was starting to get kind of tired of Twitter a little bit, I started thinking of other opportunities. And I think my roommate knew that before I knew that. And so I think she started planting the seed very early on of getting me to join as, you know, like the technical co-founder. And so eventually it worked. And I joined on her startup as a technical co-founder. And so we lived together and we worked together. And I always say that there should have been like a real world kind of reality show based on our house because we were living with essentially it was three couples living in a house with three dogs. And there was one startup going on. (laughs) What was the the startup and how was she working on it by herself without a technical co-founder? So the startup is in the pet health space. Um, The idea, the original idea was to digitize pet health uh, medical records. When we first met, actually, we just kind of like looked at each other and were like, okay, for some reason we click, like she's more business minded and I'm more technical. Mm -hmm. And so we started meeting up every week, um, like once or twice a week to kind of brainstorm ideas of, of things that we could work on. And at the time she had two dogs and she was really interested in the space already. And I, I mean, I don't have pets. I didn't grow up with pets. I don't really um, <laughs> care. Yeah. And so, and so I just kind of joined along for the ride, you know, to help her out. And then eventually work got really busy for me. And uh, she actually started a dev boot camp, And so she taught herself to code. And that's how she made the first iteration of MVP. So 
I'm sure you can see like she's a really smart person and she's very motivated. And so it wasn't so hard of a decision to decide to to join her startup. So my degree was in computer engineering, not as much coding as I would have liked compared to a degree like computer science. But I would say that I learned how to make websites at a very early age, probably around like seventh or eighth grade. I kind of found my niche on the internet at the time. And it was kind of like a group of other teenagers. And we all just like to make websites and share each other's websites and talk about, you know, other people's websites and our websites is a really fun time. And then I kind of stopped when I entered university. I originally was trying to get a chemical engineering degree. And my first internship, so I went to the University of Waterloo. So you have six internships as part of your degree. My first internship was at a toilet paper factory, which was really, really cool, but not super interesting. And one of my first jobs was, or one of my major tasks was to like, I don't know, write this, like do some spreadsheet thing. And I ended up automating it. And then something clicked in me and I was like, oh man, I need to switch out of chemical engineering because I can't do this anymore. And I got into computer engineering. I think those are two of the best ways to learn how to code. Number one, when you're just playing around because you're genuinely curious and there's no real pressure. But number two, and I think this is more common, when you have a specific project or a problem that you're you're facing, you really need to get this thing done. And so you just end up looking things up online or taking classes or doing whatever it is that you need to do to figure out that specific thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's how I feel about everything I'm doing with lunch money. So tell me how... Um, what ended up happening with your uh, digitized pet health record startup? Yeah, so when I when I joined, it was so great. It was so fun. I think um, one of the main reasons why I left Twitter was because it was getting very bureaucratic. There was a lot of extra process. Things were getting bogged down. And I was just kind of craving um, having autonomy again in what I was working on. And so what was really appealing to me with joining a startup was like, wow, I would be one of two co-founders. And my voice will be heard for sure. And I'll have a lot of control and freedom. Um, and so that was really great at first. And then it quickly turned into like too much control and too much freedom. I think we made basically every mistake in the book. Um, I think we basically, what did I do? Like I built probably two or three major features or products that we didn't even have customers for yet. We took every meeting from like every investor, every VC, and I was just burning myself out because I was working from home. So I took my computer desk out of my room into the living room next to hers, and we would just work all day and all night. And at that time, I was I was in a long distance relationship with my boyfriend. And so like I didn't have any plans like I could just work from morning to night until I pass out. So it wasn't it wasn't very sustainable. You know, there was a lot of highlights for sure. When we started off, we got into the YC Fellowship. That was kind of like a spinoff they were trying to do off of the, the main batches. And the fellowship was basically a program for earlier startups that were not quite ready yet to be in the main batch. So the idea is that they would kind of prep you and then you would get an instant interview to get into, into the main batch. And so we did the YC Fellowship. Um, it was really cool. It was really fun. And then we did the YC interview and we got rejected. And I think that was like the first time that I felt that failure, that rejection, it really hit me hard. But, you know, we, we got back up and we kept working. And before we knew it, it was time for another batch of like YC interviews. And so we applied again, we got an interview, we got called back for a second interview, which means you're kind of like on the fence. And then we got rejected again. <laughs> oh, man. And it was so, it was like, I just remember feeling so devastated. I think at that time, like when you're, you know, when you're starting your own company and you have your foot in the door with YC and everyone kind of knows, you know, the name of YC. And so if you get in, it's kind of like, you know, it's your, you have the support that would be really helpful for your startup to grow and stuff. And it just really sucked to miss that opportunity. And I think I felt at that point that maybe without that opportunity, we wouldn't be able to make it. 
or at least, you know, at that time we weren't good enough. And so it really, really, really hit me hard. Yeah. And so after that, I think there was kind of this very obvious change in demeanor from me. I just wanted to work alone most days. And I was still into the product. I was still into the company. I just felt myself change a little bit. And I, you know, my boyfriend at the time, now husband, he was kind of telling me, you know, like things were changing. I was being a little more frustrated. Like when he would come home from work, I would just have like unleash all this like negative feelings to him. And so just slowly realizing that it wasn't good for my mental health overall. And so I think it took like a day of reflection to just be like, all right, I'm 26. I'm not married. I have no kids. My parents are healthy and I have savings. And they say the average age of a startup is seven years before you get acquired or you die. And I was like, okay, well, by that count, I'll be like 30 something. And I don't want to spend the rest of my 20s, you know, kind of trying to play out the Silicon Valley dream. And so and so I think I reacted in like the strongest way possible. And I decided to just leave San Francisco. So I I went through the motions of selling everything. I got really into minimalism. So I just like, you know, I went from having the burden and the responsibility of having a company to just wanting to have nothing at all or as close to nothing at all as possible. Where'd you go after you decided to leave San Francisco and quit the startup life? Uh, So I went home uh, for like two to three months. Home is Toronto, where my parents are. Um, And that was the longest time that I had spent at home since starting university. And that was actually really cool because, you know, I realized that when I only go home for like a week at a time, you, the conversations you have with your parents are very, like, very much at the high level. You just kind of like catch up on the basic things. And then by the time you, you know, before you have the opportunity to dive deeper into anything, you have to leave again. And then it kind of like restarts back up. But then when you are home for like two months, like you kind of get all that out of the way from the first week. And then you just start having like deeper conversations. And I just, I don't know, it was just really nice way to start my sabbatical, if you call it, just having more profound conversations with my parents as an adult. Yeah, I just got back from visiting my mom in Atlanta and I'm sure she would have loved it if I just stayed there and (laughs) didn't leave. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I think this phenomenon, just talking about you getting rejected from YC and then going back again and getting rejected again, it's so interesting how much as an entrepreneur you really want that external validation because it's just you and potentially your co-founder sitting alone in your room working on this thing. You don't have like a huge team like you did at Twitter you don't have a boss assigning you work. Like no one really recognizes all the effort and the work that you're putting in. And it's so easy when you have an investor who can sort of, I don't know, basically tell you that you made it, validate your existence and validate that you were good enough to make it over some bar. It's so tempting to let that affect your mood and let that affect whether or not you see yourself as a success or a failure. And I think one of the tough things about being a bootstrapper, which you are now with lunch money, is that you don't even have that. There's no one to really tell you, hey, Jen, you're doing a good job. Hey, keep going. Hey, you know, I validate that your, your thing is working. You have to really get all that from yourself or from your customers. Mm-hmm. How do you maintain motivation working on lunch money without having any sort of authority figure to tell you that you're doing a good job? Great question. I would say that right now, since I have a lot of users and they are very enthusiastic, they are my external validators. And I do get regular emails and messages from people telling me that I'm doing a great job and stuff. And so it's, you know, I love getting those emails and those messages. It's very, very motivating. Um, But before I got that first, you know, wave of users, it was, it was very difficult because until you get that first wave of users, you pretty much just built the product for yourself. So it was definitely very difficult. Also, my first few users were my friends and my family. And so it's hard to know if what they're saying about my product is, genuine like I'm sure they genuinely want me to do well and they you know have an opinion about the product but you're just not sure if like hey are you trying to spare my feelings like you should just tell me what you really think (laughs) kind of thing I think in the beginning before I had any users I was very motivated to at least get the MVP out so that my husband and I could use it and for me that would have been enough and then I think as I started to get more users I started to 
kind of expand on that. Like, oh, okay, cool. If I could get like 10 users, that would be really cool. Oh, cool. I have 10 users now. It'd be really cool if I got 60 and just kind of like have your motivator advance at a reasonable granularity. On the subject of talking to your friends and family and trying to get accurate feedback instead of just having them tell you what you want to hear so you feel better, there's a whole book called The Mom Test that I highly recommend. It's actually surprisingly difficult to ask customers questions that are non-biased, but that book does a really good job of teaching you how to do just that. How long did it take you to go from having the idea for your app Lunch Money to getting it to the point where it wasn't just something for your friends and family to use, but that random strangers on the internet could start beta testing? So the timeline is, let's see, it took about a year and a half to quote unquote perfect my spreadsheet, which is what Lunch Money is based on. From there, it took about two months to get the very, very basic MVP for my husband and I to use. And then from there, it took, let's see, about four and a half months before I opened it up to like a private beta. And I think about a month after that, I opened it up to a public beta. So all in all, let's see, it was about eight months of coding before before my actual like public launch. Let's talk about the spreadsheet you had where you were basically traveling around being a digital nomad and I guess trying to reconcile the fact that you're spending all this money in different currencies and it was hard to budget. When you were working on the spreadsheet, did you have any idea that it's something that you would turn into an app or a company someday? So the spreadsheet didn't start until after I finished my travels, actually. I think it started because I was like, oh, I haven't been tracking any of my spending during my travels. But having moved back, so I moved back to Toronto permanently after my travels. And I think having that permanence of being in a place, I was finally like, okay, I can, I can start a spreadsheet and it won't be, you know, won't change so much every month because I'm in a different place and my circumstances change a lot. Yeah. And also my boyfriend at the time, he also moved to Toronto and we just moved in together. And I was like, oh, like we should do the spreadsheet thing that couples do. And like, see how much we're spending and stuff like that. And so, yeah, that spreadsheet started and it grew and grew and grew and grew to the point where every time I opened it, it would kind of like slow down because there were so many sheets we were trying to track. And on top of that, we had multi-currency to deal with, which the whole time it was just a fixed currency exchange rate, which is, which is not right. A lot of people, when they're trying to come up with an idea for a business, follow this advice of looking to solve problems in their own lives. Here you had a spreadsheet that was getting bogged down because it couldn't keep up with all the information you were putting into it. Did you have sort of an aha moment where you realized that you could solve your problem by building an app? It was definitely not, you know, I didn't open a spreadsheet and go like, this is going to be an app one day. It was a very slow process and I was pretty proud of my budgeting spreadsheet to be honest, but it's not something that you can just like share with the world. Um, I guess people on Reddit do that. But it, it just was something that was really, really personal. And the only people that I ended up showing it to were my sister-in-laws when they visited. And so they were just kind of fresh out of college. And I was starting to talk to them about budgeting. And I showed them um, the way that we do it. And I set them up with a template, not really thinking you know, I would explain the way that I do things, like taking out your recurring expenses into a separate sheet and like categorizing and stuff. And I didn't think that any of it would actually stick until I saw one of them like three months later and she was like, Oh, I'm still using your budgeting spreadsheet and I'm going to get my boyfriend on it. And I was like, Oh wow, that's really cool. Like, you know, I have like one person that's using my budgeting spreadsheet and to me that was validation enough to like really pursue maybe turning it into an app. And I, and the timing was really good. Cause at that point um, my husband and I were getting ready to um, live abroad in Japan for the winter and at that point, I was freelancing. I didn't really have a steady job. And I knew that I would have extra time to work on a new side project. I just didn't know what. And so it kind of fit perfectly into that, into that void of, of what to do. So when you're starting a brand new project, and you're somebody who's already done this before, you've already started a company, it didn't go so well, and you quit because of it. What's going through your mind this time around? Are you thinking of any mistakes that you made last time? that you want to avoid? For sure. The main thing was that I knew it wouldn't be a free product. <laughs> Is that My other startup, we had, it was kind of freemium. We had kind of a basic 
offering and then you could upgrade for like five or ten dollars or something like that and the majority of our users were using the free product and you know i would do customer support and it would just kind of suck to spend so much time on users that you know will probably not convert because they're pretty happy with the basic product so i i knew definitely that if i were to work on something that i would charge um right off the bat one of the things you mentioned being frustrated with with your first startup was that it was just so much work and you had a co-founder then, so it wasn't just you by yourself. You had somebody else to take a load off your shoulders and really do half of the work. And now here you are with lunch money as a solo founder doing all of it. How do you go into a company and make that decision to, to do everything by yourself, knowing how much work it could be? It's actually, I don't think that the two are similar at all when I think about it. And I think the main difference is that when I was working on a startup with my friend, it was mainly her idea and her passion. You know, like she has the two dogs, like I just, I just live with them. And so I was really just there as, you know, the founding engineer. I was just kind of like making the vision come alive and code. In some ways it wasn't so different from, you know, working on a big company where you're just kind of working on someone else's vision. Um, of course, it was really fun to be able to talk through the product and talk to customers and stuff. But at the end of the day, it wasn't something that I was using every day that I found value in. Sometimes I still don't really understand the whole, you know, like landscape of why, you know, what the laws are around pet medical record and stuff like that. Yeah. So, so this being a hundred percent makes a huge difference. And also when I was working the startup, I was mainly just doing product and engineering. Um, there's a lot of things that I'm interested in. I didn't have the opportunity to work on just because you don't want to stretch yourself too thin, mainly design and marketing. I've always been interested in design, but it was never something that I could pursue. Being an engineer in Silicon Valley, it's like, you know, you're either an engineer or you're a designer. And so they two don't really mix. And so now with lunch money, I get to wear all the hats that I've always wanted to wear. And, and that to me is it keeps things fun. So let's talk about the hats that you have to wear as a founder, because None of these hats are trivial. Like learning how to do marketing, learning how to be a designer, that could take years by itself, even as a full-time job. You could spend eight hours a day learning to be a designer and still spend a year before you get to the point where you're just decent. How did you pick up these skills that you wanted to learn while also building and getting this fully featured product out the door in eight months? Yeah, so with design, it's funny. Like there's this running joke just between my husband where I'm just kind of like, oh, am I a designer yet? Like, oh, this person, you know, Triple accepted my like design stuff. Am I a designer yet? Because it's like maybe a little bit of imposter syndrome thing or there's a little bit of a protective nature around, you know, calling yourself a designer. I just like to, you know, fire up sketch and, and make designs and stuff. And I didn't really understand what it meant to be a designer until I worked at the startup and we hired a designer and she sent over, you know, mock-ups and stuff. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, that's how they do it. Like, they send in a nice PDF with like a, you know, like a cover page and stuff. And 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 it's funny because with one of my freelancing jobs, their designer was kind of like really late with the designs. And I was like, oh, like, I can design as well. Like, would you like me to send you some mock-ups? And then I just kind of did the same thing that, you know, I kind of put together a PDF and stuff and it looked pretty legit. Also at Twitter, like kind of getting mock-ups from designers and seeing like, oh, I see like you write the margins on there and you put the padding and like, that's how you do it. So it's just kind of picking up, you know, real world ways of doing things mixed with my own kind of like dabbling with programs. I think that was an interesting combination that got me to designing everything for lunch money today. What about growth and marketing stuff? Because it's not easy to get people to actually come to your app once you've built it. How did you get your first users in the door? And how did you learn how to do marketing for lunch money? Marketing is hard. Marketing is hard for, especially for an engineer's brain to comprehend uh, because results don't happen automatically. (laughs) You kind of like do something and then you wait like three months to see if maybe it moved the needle and now I'm yeah, it's tough that. to learn from those really slow feedback loops. Yeah. And, and right now I literally am learning that, okay, like the needle move, but it's not going to stay there. Like it might move back. And I'm just like, no, why? So marketing, marketing is hard, but actually any hackers has helped me 
uh, with that a lot. I went to the Indie Hackers Toronto meetup and I met someone who was really, really well versed in SEO and he basically demystified it for me and kind of allowed me to see SEO in a different light. And then that night I went home and I just read all these blog posts about different you know, methods of SEO, all about backlinks and keyword research and all that stuff. And, and so that was really, really helpful. And even, even throughout like the online community, a lot of people have reached out with like marketing tips and resources. And so it's just like, it's just so awesome that even though I have no experience in marketing at all, like there's this awesome community full of people that know that and they're willing to help. Cool. The Toronto meetup is one of my favorites. Is Henry still running it? Do you remember? Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah, I was in Toronto a little over a year ago. I think it was November. And I just remember it being so bitter cold and it, it snowed and I was just like not happy. <laughs> and the highlight of the trip was the ND Hackers group there because you Canadians are super nice. Yeah, for sure. So while we're on the subject of marketing, one of the things that stands out to me about Lunch Bunny is that it's a budgeting app. And there exist other budgeting apps. You were not the first person to build a budgeting app. You mentioned YNAB, which is huge. You mentioned Mint, uh, which is also extremely popular. I think a lot of indie hackers, when they're considering an idea and they're brainstorming, if they come up with an idea that has already been done before, they rule it out. They figure, like, doesn't a business idea have to be super unique? Won't all the distribution channels be saturated? Isn't everybody already using the existing apps? Don't they have a ton of features? Uh, why didn't any of this stuff discourage you when you were deciding to work on Lunch Money? That's a great point. The main reason I thought I felt that way is literally because of multi-currency. Like the two big players, Mint and YNAB, neither of them support multi-currency natively. And that was the thing that I baked in from the very beginning. But I think you also bring up a really good point that a lot of people feel that the personal finance and budgeting app space is oversaturated. I actually don't think that at all because I feel that the the personal finance is a very personal thing, right? And so everyone has their own way that they like to do things. And I don't think that this is something where you're going to find over 50% of people have, you know, they share the same, the same budgeting philosophy or whatever. And so I feel that if you have a preferred way of doing something, you could probably find a cohort out there that feels the same way. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's almost like teaching where so many people can enter the space and teach others to do something like learn how to code. And yet the space never gets saturated because everybody has their own different learning style that they prefer. Yeah. Also, there was a Fast Company article that came out maybe like two weeks ago about the downfall of Mint. I mean, Mint has 13 million customers and they're all frustrated with the product. Mm. You know what I mean? Like if you could just capture 0.05% of that. I did the math last night. <laughs> it would be like, that would be enough. You know, like I, I think someone on the Indie Hackers forum, like a few days ago was like, oh, should I build yet another budgeting app? And I was like, yeah, you should do it. It's like, you know, if you can find a use case for it, I think that like, I don't think it should be discouraging that, be, you know, because there are so many out there already. Yeah. I'm one of those frustrated Mint users or ex-Mint users. Uh, because I used to use it years ago. I would go in and categorize all my credit card transactions and yeah. put things into categories and do budgeting. And then I, I just stopped because it was pretty frustrating to use, to be honest. But I do remember being inspired by the story of men's creation. The founder is this guy named Aaron Patzer. And I think it was like the mid-2000s. From what I remember, he just like locked himself in his apartment and coded this budgeting app for like six months. And then eventually grew it to be this like $200 million company. How familiar were you with Men's Story and their sort of feature set and also YNAB's uh, features and stuff before you started coding Lunch Money? I wasn't familiar with Men's Story at all when I started. I was pretty familiar with YNAB's story. Actually, fun fact, I applied to be an engineer there and I got rejected, <laughs> which is probably a good thing. There would probably have been like a non-compete clause or something. But I with YNAB... I was familiar with their remote culture, which I thought was really, really cool. That was the first company that I've ever come across that had this. What about the features behind both apps? Because if you're going to basically build something in a space where there's these two huge competitors, I imagine like, you're going to be inspired a little bit by what they've done. Um, yeah. You might feel obligated to catch up to them on features. How are you assessing the two competitors on, on that note? So Men and YNAB are really good 
kind of case studies, I think that they're very, very different. So Mint tries to do everything kind of like they try to do, they kind of try to present all the information and then they try to add a bunch of magic to it. And also there's a lot of ads everywhere. Whereas YNAB is, is a very fleshed out product, but only for a very specific budgeting method. Right. And so one of them is very, very rigid and the other one tries to do like way too much. And so I tried to find the happy medium of like, you know, just being more pragmatic, like, Hey, here's the information you need. You don't, you don't need to follow anyone budgeting method, but we're just going to present the information to you in a way that you can analyze it. And we'll give you the tools to organize your transactions in a way that makes sense to you. And we don't want there to be a steep learning curve to that either. Um, and so I find that a lot of users resonate with that. Like they really enjoy that sweet spot in between those two major budgeting methods right now. Yeah, I've seen you say online that your ideal user is somebody who actually doesn't use Mint or who doesn't use YNAB, who isn't already sucked <laughs> into a particular budgeting method, but who wants to get started budgeting. Yeah, that's a really good example of like me thinking that I knew who my target audience was and being totally off. <laughs> it's actually like I sent out a survey recently and I think 40% of my users came from Mint. And so that was really surprising to me. Yeah, it's quite a um, Yeah, I think... Mint users are ready for a change. So in a way, I feel that this is like a really good time to come out with a budgeting app. I'm like asking for competitors to come out. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. Uh, Let's talk about your productivity as a solo founder because all of these budgeting apps have been around, as you said, for like 10 years. And they all have dozens and dozens of pretty advanced features that have been coded by uh, giant teams of engineers. Mm -hmm. And yet here you are basically building your own budgeting app. And I imagine you had to you know, achieve some degree of feature parity or probably build just a lot of features to get your initial beta testers to find any utility in your app. At the same time you're doing that, you have to do all the marketing and the design work and the customer support and also try to live a normal life as a normal human being. Uh, how did you budget your time and get all of that done? Great question. I wonder that often myself, even after having lived <laughs> through it. <laughs> I think that a big doing the whole digital nomad thing in one set place for a long time for we were in Fukuoka, Japan for four months um, and having a routine. I think that was really, really helpful for the first few months of development where I just had to be like heads down every day, just working to get those core features out. That was actually really fun. And it was very interesting to do in Fukuoka because it was winter then. And so we just kind of wanted to hold ourselves up in a coffee shop all day and work. It worked out really well because at the time my husband was also trying to get, he also had a lot that he wanted to do on the computer basically. And so we both kind of made it normal to just be on our laptops all day. And so I would work on lunch money. I had certain core features that I just wanted to get through and I got through them. The way that I work is I pick a feature. So let's say just like the budgeting feature and I'll start with the design and then I'll do the coding, and then I'll do the testing, and then I'll launch it. And so everything is kind of like siloed. And so I did that for four months. And by the end of it, I had, you know, a pretty full, not a full feature product, but MVP worthy of a product. And then from there, once I start having people use it, um, the feature requests would come in, and I would kind of be able to see like, all right, this is the thing that I need to work on next. And it kind of just turn into this feedback loop that would just kind of dictate what I worked on next. And by then I had method to kind of every new feature. And so it was just kind of like clockwork at that time for me. So on one hand, it's super impressive to hear. But on the other, I think it should serve as a warning to people who are listening in as to why simply building lots of features isn't a good competitive advantage. You could be Mint or you could be YNAB and you could have tons of developers working on an app for years. And yet a single solo developer could sit down in Fukuoka for four months and basically build a competitor. Looking back on the time you spent, do you think you worked more back then than you're working now? And also, do you think the rate at which you're working was sustainable over the long term? I was definitely working a lot in Fukuoka. We, that was our first digital, I would call it digital snowmad journey. We picked Fukuoka because it was a new city to us and we wanted to live in Japan because the food there is awesome. And we didn't have any friends there, really. We didn't have any like obligations, social obligations. We weren't really active in the community or anything. And so we were able to work, you know, eight plus hours every day 
even on the weekends. And that was fun to us. We, we really enjoyed it and we have no regrets from doing that. How does that compare to your work schedule today? Yeah. So it's interesting. So in the beginning, it was probably around like eight plus hours a day. And then around or right after I launched for those first two to three months, it was insanity. I think I was probably working more than I was in Fukuoka. But then now for like the last two months, I feel like I've kind of caught up and the product is at a state where most people are satisfied with it. And so I feel like, you know, I finally feel like I can take a day off and it's not like, you know, I'm really disappointing users because this core feature that is so important is not out yet. Yeah, we were talking earlier and you mentioned that you wanted to stay a solo founder forever. And I think a lot of people like that idea and I, I once did too. But then I think about how much help I get from my brother working with me on Indie Hackers and Rosie helping to manage Indie Hackers community. And I can step away for a few days or weeks and things just go on. Why do you want to stay a solo founder forever? And also, what's your plan to make that work? Well, the dream is definitely to stay a forever one-woman show. Um, but that's that's not to say that it's 100% me. You know, I, I really like to chat with other founders and other indie hackers and see what we're able to teach each other and help each other out with in our respective journeys. And that's been really beneficial for Lunch Money. So, uh, for example, whenever I meet someone who's really strong at digital marketing, I just love to talk to them and pick at their brains a little bit and you know, more often than not, they end up helping me uncover blind spots and lunch money. So having a good support network, you know, a good and diverse support network is is a big part of the long-term journey. Um, but aside from that, on the engineering point of view, which is arguably the more laborious side of things, I feel like right now I'm on top of most of the moving parts. And um, more importantly, my users seem satisfied with my current pace of development. So it feels pretty sustainable now, um, I'm definitely cautiously optimistic. Um, I'm pretty curious slash excited to see how things change as my user base grows and, and how I personally grow and scale as a solo founder and a one-person engineering team. But but yeah, I really hope to stay a solo founder, though. Yeah, so I guess it's just a matter of like, I think I can do this on my own sustainably. I don't have like huge ambitions for this. You know, I left that all in Silicon Valley. I'm not trying to get a million users. I think having a million users would kind of be a headache, a little bit of a headache. Um, but I just want to make like a cool product that a couple thousand people really like and really use. And I can really like make them happy. And that would make me really happy. And, you know, I've always said that my dream is, is to be like a work from home mom or like a stay-at-home mom, but not because, you know, I married rich or whatever, but because like I built something myself that can work for yeah. me on the side. And then I can spend more time with my family, my parents, my husband, stuff like that. You know, the unbridled optimism of a solo indie hacker founder. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're talking a lot about motivation and what keeps you going. And you have this strong vision of a lifestyle for yourself that Quite frankly, I think a lot of indie hackers have. I think what gets a lot of us out of bed in the morning is this vision of this lifestyle that we want to lead. And I think that can drive us to do some pretty difficult things that ordinarily we wouldn't do. And the question sometimes is how much is too much? You know, How driven should you be? How hard should you work? And how do you in particular, Jen, deal with burnout when you've worked too hard? Because I know that's something you've dealt with in the past. Burnout is very, very real. Burnout is, you know, if you were to ask my husband, I think that he would say that I burn out more than I would like to admit. For some reason, he can just kind of look at me and be like, I think you're burning out. And I'll just be really like wired on caffeine. Like, I don't think I am. I think everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And my body just doesn't respond to stress very well. Like I, I've had shingles like three times from stress, which is something that you should get when you're like, you know, over 60. And so personal wellness, self-care, like is at the top of my mind when it is, because when I am in the zone, it's hard to think about that stuff. But yeah, I've noticed that my working cadence is kind of like, I'll be really deep into a major feature or just maybe a, a group of improvements that I'd like to make on a particular feature. And I'll work on it for like, three days. And once I deploy and I notify my users, it's like this wave comes crashing down. And then I'm just like, I just 
lose the motivation to work a little bit. And I think that's my body telling me like, Hey, I just need a break. Mm -hmm. And so my schedule is basically like work really hard for three to four days and then take like a day, a day and a half off. And I find that that works really well for me. I need to try that because I think I've been trying to do this very balanced schedule within a day, you know, work eight hours and then take the rest of the night off thing. And it just doesn't work. Mm -hmm. There are just so many days where I get really obsessed with something and, you know, I'm really into it. I really want to finish it. And it's pretty hard to have any semblance of balance when that's going on. But at the same time, obviously, you can't do that forever. You can't just continually get obsessed with stuff and never take a break because then you're going to burn out. Uh, so maybe a more natural schedule is like a few days on, a few days off, or like a few weeks on, you know, and then a week off or something. Kind of go hard, pedal to the metal, and then take a big break. For sure. I think it's really important not to disrupt that like zone that you get into. I think that zone is so... Like once you're in it, it's like you can hammer out so much and you're just a different type of worker. I don't know. And, and yeah, I just think it's, it's really important to not, to not disrupt that. And it's equally important to let yourself recover after you get out of that zone as well. So a lot of founders are, I think, increasingly becoming digital nomads. You are yourself. You call yourself a digital snowmad. Uh, you've been doing this yeah. for quite a long time. You traveled all over the world. What are your tips for somebody like me who hasn't done this? and yet is considering becoming a digital nomad and a founder at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm such a big advocate for people to just carve out their own like alternative lifestyle, but I would never tell someone, hey, this is what you need to do or whatever. Like, I just want to share my story and, and kind of show people that like, hey, this is within reach and everyone's journey is going to be different and cater to yourself and only you can figure that out. And it's okay if it takes you a year or two to figure it out. Yeah. Like just figuring what works for you is really important. Some people enjoy traveling like every two weeks, every month. For me, I did that when I was on my sabbatical and it was very tiring. Um, I didn't enjoy it at all. I felt like I barely grazed the surface of every city that I was in. And so when my husband and I set out to do this, we decided that we wanted to focus more on depth instead of breadth of, of the place. So we picked one city that we just decided we would spend, you know, four months in and we would get really immersed in the culture because that was really important to us. We, you know, when we were in Fukuoka, we spent time learning Japanese. And so we were able to um, have very basic conversation with locals, order food, all the important stuff. But this time we're in Taipei. And we didn't, you know, we chose not to go back to Fukuoka because the working cafe culture wasn't, wasn't so great. You know, it's not very welcoming to just kind of plop down on your laptop for six hours in a cafe and take up space. They don't really have outlets and, and Wi-Fi. And that was really important to us. And we realized that while we were there. And so we made sure to take that into account when we would pick our next destination. And so now we're in Taipei, which which we spent time in before, and we understand that the working cafe culture is very welcoming, and it's been night and day, like our digital snowman journey in Taipei and Fukuoka. Yeah, I'm having a little bit of a similar, I guess a similar story to what you went through, where you were in San Francisco working in tech and startups for, for five years, basically, and eventually you got tired and you said, I'm done. And I've been in SF for 10 years now. And I love the city, but I think it's just time for me to move on. Uh, and there's just so much online. There's so many resources. We have a digital nomads group on the ND Hackers website. There's nomad list, of course, where everybody's sharing all this information about what cities to go to and which cafes are the best. Are you using any special tools or websites that let you know where to go and what to do once you're there? Let's see. It, it's it's interesting. We don't do so much research, I think. So we found Fukuoka because we were in a coffee shop in Taiwan and I found a random magazine that had a little bit of English in it and there was a little section about Fukuoka. It was just randomly open and I was like, oh, there's this city in Japan that's, you know, in the countryside, but it's it's got a lot of like hip culture and it's up and coming and the mayor of Fukuoka really likes Seattle and so they're trying to make it all bike friendly and stuff. And then that kind of stuck with us and, and then we literally decided to move there. So we didn't really do so much like in-depth research. I think we just kind of trusted like, all right, we want to be in Japan, but we don't want to be in a big city. I think that's right. that's like kind of a big thing for us. Um, and then with Taipei, we had spent time here before and we really liked it, but 
we were only able to graze the surface because of the language barrier, I would say. And so this time around, we really prioritized learning Mandarin. And it's been really awesome because we've been taking classes, we've been taking online tutoring sessions, and that has, you know, twofold benefit of being able to speak to locals more and kind of uncover more of Taipei. But also it provides kind of like a hobby on the side, you know, from all the lunch money work and kind of like a a, a parallel goal that doesn't really overlap, but it's something that keeps another part of my brain kind of running. Yeah, that sounds nice. It's funny if you if you go out in San Francisco, pretty much everybody's got a startup. And uh, so you end up basically not really ever getting out of the startup zone, um, yeah. which is cool sometimes. I mean, it's really energizing. But also if you're looking for a break, I don't know if it can really compare to the Japanese countryside. But anyway, Jen, it's been great talking to you. I've got one more question before I let you get out of here. There are a lot of indie hackers listening who haven't gotten started yet. You've been working on lunch money for the last year and a half. What's your advice to them and what do you think they can take away from you know, the lessons that you've learned over the past year and a half and also with your previous startup? So reflecting on my own experiences so far, I would say that an overarching theme is self-driven change. And I know that's not easy for everyone. It can be really scary to change things up. Um, but personally, I realize that I have a tendency to to leave when things start to get too comfortable. And that has always been a net positive for me in the end. So for example, uh, changing teams at Twitter helped me round out my skills as an engineer. Uh, stepping away from the grind of Silicon Valley and moving away from SF reinvigorated my love and passion for programming. And it also helped me regain a sense of personal purpose. And even now, you know, as as part-time digital nomads, changing our environments every winter forces us to to reestablish new routines, which is sometimes easier than just trying to change one aspect of an otherwise rigid routine. Um, so I feel like not being afraid of change and embracing the unknown and the unexpected would really prepare you to be an indie hacker because, you know, once your product is out there, you put a lot of yourself out there and it's scary and things come at you left and right. And most of the time you can't plan for these things. And all you can do is have a prepared mindset and, and a good attitude about, about the whole thing. I think that's a great point that as an indie hacker, you're going to have a lot of things coming your way that you can't necessarily control. And so the best thing you can do is just learn to get comfortable with it. So it's pretty cool to see that you're actually forcing these changes on yourself so that you develop a kind of mindset where you can handle it graciously. For sure. Jen Yip, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about what you're up to and what's going on with Lunch Money? Sure. So you can find out more about Lunch Money at lunchmoney.app. And we have a coupon code for Indie Hackers listeners. Just put in uh, Indie Hackers, all one word, and you'll get a 25% off any plan. And... I am on Twitter at Lunchbag, and I also have a personal blog where I try to write about entrepreneurship and the digital nomad lifestyle. So that's at lunchbag.ca. All right, Jen. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to support the Indie Hackers Podcast, I would suggest going to the website and signing up for the Indie Hackers Podcast newsletter. Every episode, I send out a new email with my thoughts and takeaways. You can find that at indiehackers.com slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.